Leadership, purpose, service. This is Fulfilling the Dream with Wayman Brett. Your path to greatness is not simply paved with the grinding feet of persistence. Through motivating stories and personal testimonials, gain the insight you need to overcome life's biggest challenges and break through those barriers that hinder you. So when opportunity knocks at your door, you'll be ready. Welcome to Fulfilling the Dream. Welcome to Fulfilling the Dream. We're here with Jim Hackett today, and Jim is a longtime friend, former CEO of Ford Motor Company and Steelcase Incorporated. He also was the interim director of athletics at the University of Michigan. And he has an amazing story about family and life, living here in our great state of Michigan, and, and even more. So welcome to Fulfilling the Dream, and Jim Hackett is our guest today. Jim, welcome. Wayman, it's great to be with you. And our listeners should know how far back we go to a Sunday when I'm a senior in college and I scored some tickets for the uh, front row when the University of Michigan and Marquette were playing basketball. And you had an unbelievable game. Um, and uh, you're an incredible athlete and even a better Thank person. You. Thank you, Jim. And that Marquette went on to win the national championship that, that year. year. That's right. And and we 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 did it to him uh, on on that Sunday. Don't want any of the Marquette listeners to get upset. <laughs> but this is the guy that caused the mischief. You bring back those memories. I tell you, that was the tougher team. Maurice Lucas and Bo Ellis and Al McGuire. Those guys were tough, man. Yeah. But uh, we know we came back the next year and we uh, went all the way to the NCAA finals my senior year. So it it, it ended okay. It ended okay. Yes, sir. Well, it's so, great to be with you. Yeah, Jim. And, and, and you have had a wonderful career. And we're going to talk a lot about how your, your ascent to Steelcase and then to Ford. And uh, maybe you could help some of the listeners out there to understand uh, how do you overcome these difficult issues in life hmm. and to, to blaze a trail, which is what you've done. I mean, the stuff you've done for Ford uh, in, in particular the uh, autonomous vehicles and all of the things that you're doing, you've done to create a better vehicle and a life for people. Uh, amazing work. And then at Steelcase, I know that in particular, what you did for the office furniture environment. Uh, I don't know if many people know, but you were, you were one of the folks that I, I got a chance to know while I was there. And we had an interesting situation one week where you asked me to help one employee uh, who was coming in, who had been referred by Bo Schembechler. And uh, that was an interesting opportunity to help a young man who had gone to University of Michigan. So you really, beyond just the technology, the innovation, you really care a lot about people. And you did all that you could to make people's lives better. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. And uh, and just uh, let's let's start out and talk about what was the pivotal moment for you uh, as you began your career at Steelcase, what prompted your, what led you to the point that you saw yourself in that key role, becoming the CEO of Steelcase and becoming the vice chairman of the, of the company? Uh, tell me more about that. Well, the, you know, the beginning of uh, that setting uh, underscores something which is, I never saw myself in a role like that. Uh, I didn't, Really, I didn't seek it, 
and and it's hard to talk about oneself you know for me um, I, I think probably the underpinnings of all that <clears throat> is I grew up in a fantastic family uh, of four boys so I was the youngest and it was two on two everything you know athletically academically intellectually at the dinner table so uh, humility was a virtue you know <clears throat> that I truly truly do think about um, and so when the, C the CEO job of Steelcase was kind of presented to me, I suggested to Bob Pugh that there were better people. And I meant that, um, you know, because uh, I was young. I had just turned 39. Yeah. I was really 38 when we started and became 39 when I got the job. And um, it, it just seemed premature, you know, for, for a career. But, but because I didn't have it in my sights, I wasn't like accumulating the things that you need to be successful. I was just really excited about doing what I was doing. And at that time, I was doing a startup for Steelcase. It was a very creative, innovative uh, idea uh, in an industry that you know is quite successful but didn't have a lot of new ideas, particularly not new business models. And so, so the board saw that innovation at the time that they had this change in leadership and that probably raised my candidacy and right. that's that's what starts it wow so bob Pugh, tell me about bob Pugh and your relationship well with bob, bob Pugh, it's important in that story that um that i had such res such respect for him he's passed on but i had such respect for him because he was such an authentic direct yeah. no-nonsense you know leader he was kind of what uh, Tom Brokaw calls you know the World War II generation yeah. you know men of few words but yeah. big hearts and uh, and so when when this moment occurs that he's got to change the leader of the company that's really what happens he uh, comes to see me I was an executive reporting to the previous CEO he comes to see me at this startup and we had locked the door to this building because it was really a startup. We, we wanted no one to see what we were doing. And so he's knocking at the door and he can't get in and he's the owner of the company, you know, of the building. So there was a little moment of hilarity there. Well, the guy, we're in a meeting, I go, well, somebody's at the door and our guy goes, and you gotta understand this is like in the early 90s. Yeah. He doesn't have any shoes on, you know, we didn't wear ties. We were real right. casual in a world where everything was formal. And so he opens the door with no shoes on and Bob comes in and, and he goes, this is kind of interesting, Jim, you know, with a, with a smirk. Um, then later he progresses in his, you know, intent. He wants to interview me about the job, but I don't know that. I don't even suspect that. I think he's coming over to see the innovation and ask my opinion who right. might do it. Wow. He says, hey, can you meet with the board, you know, the, tomorrow? I go, what about, what I, I want them to learn more about what you're doing here. We had, we had reported to the board, but again, we had kept it pretty tight. I go over to this dining room that we'd use for guests and yeah. corporate headquarters. There's two plates. And, and I go, Mr. Pugh, I thought you said, I'm gonna meet with the board. He goes, you are. So that made me laugh because, you know, this is the man. <laughs> and, and there was a board, but it was Bob's decision. And so, <clears throat> In the course of that discussion, it was kind of an interview, but a discussion about life, about values, yeah. about the company. And we get to a point where he says, 
I think I want you to do this. And I said, well, I have to go talk to my wife and think about it. Again, I didn't have the desire really right. to do it. And I took a week. In fact, he called me in the middle of the week and he says, I'm beginning to worry wow. you can't make a decision. Yeah. And I barked at him. Wow. I said, well, how'd the last decision go? Yeah. And, 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 and this is the kind of relationship I had with him, which mm. is I could confront the thinking yeah. of somebody I respected so much and he allowed that. So this is yeah. one of the things in leadership is, are you willing to hear others? Yeah, he, he was. And I made no mistake how strong he was and how emphatic he could be. But when I challenged him, and it wasn't the first time in retrospect that I'd done that, uh, the, the mutual respect grew. And then of course I, I made the decision to do yeah. it. Did you see it coming? Did you know did you have any inklings that potentially you were going to be asked to serve in that role, Jim, at all? No. <clears throat> the only thing was I, I had a peer group of people that I respect so much as well that would meet. With, they were, um, you know, I, I had a corporate role before I did this startup, and, and we would gather uh, peers to try and work on processes that crossed our domains. Yeah. And a couple times, different people said to me, you know, you ought to be running the company. And, I, you know, I just, that bounced off the atmosphere for me. I, I thought it was really, an, uh, you know, a genuine and, gosh, you know, flattering comment, but I just never saw it happening. Wow. Um, and, and it's true about the other two jobs, you know, the athletics and the four job. These are things I didn't seek or want, and I'm surprised when they came. Yeah, yeah. So you left Steelcase, and that was probably what time? Was, it was about mid two thousands. Yeah, it was uh, twenty uh, uh, thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Yeah, it'll be it'll be ten years or no twenty fourteen. It'll be ten years ago this this right. next year. Right. And that decision, I was relatively young still. I was only fifty nine, but I'd been in the job twenty years. Yeah. And I loved it. I loved the people. I loved it. We were we were rolling. I mean, we we had an innovation machine that was that was generating ideas after ideas and the standard for the company uh, by the world was highly uh, regarded. Right. Even before I took over, but I meant, you know, the body of work got better and it wasn't always like that yeah. at the beginning. And so I have a suggestion that I give to leaders which is when you're at that junction when you think, should I go on, you need to have kind of an in-depth reflection about it and tell yourself this is a decision for three years. Yeah. Because if you say, well, I can do another year, then you're back in the same dilemma, which is really starting six months before that year uh, ends. So you don't want to do that. You don't want the people that work for you or the company right. to be in a constant state of, was well, he going to stay or leave? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I told myself that. Could I see myself staying to 23 years okay. as the CEO? Right. Again, notwithstanding the board makes that decision about right. your longevity, right. but, but I had found that I wanted to work on other things. And what happened, Wayman, was the topics I were interested in. I mean, I'll just share this. One was around data, the, the nature of data science and how big the collection of information was coming from things like Google or Facebook. You gotta understand this is 10 years ago. Yeah. And I saw that there's a big opportunity 
in mainstream business to leverage that data in new ways of working. This is the abstraction was so high, I just I couldn't get there from being at Steelcase. Right. And I was at a business roundtable meeting, which is a collection of CEOs that go to Washington, D.C. And we're at a luncheon, and I'm describing this idea to the number one software company in the world that's privately held, uh, SAS, and Jim Goodnight, the founder. And uh, this idea that I have in the back of my hand, he goes, this is a really good idea, Jim. I want to come talk to you about it. Hmm. I'm now I'm employed at Steelcase. And I said, no, you know, it's just an idea. And we finished the luncheon. Two days later, he called me. He says, I'm, I'm on a plane tomorrow, my plane. I'm gonna show up in Grand Rapids. You need to be ready at 10. You know, he's a real, he, he reminded me of Bob Pugh, frankly. Yeah. And I said, no, sir, I, you gotta understand, I don't have, it's all in the, my head. Right. I don't have anything to show you. But it had that kind of lure for that, and that's the number one data science business of its day back then. And I could, so I realized I couldn't reach it from being inside Steelcase. And so I went on this path where I was going to do a startup around healthcare data sets. I invited Luis Tomatis, who's a local uh, hero of mine who's passed away and some others, and started to formulate the principles behind this. And that's when the U of M president called. And wow. And I had, you know, I just put all that on hold. Because you were, were you on the board at U of M at the time or no? How was your association, how did that connection happen uh, with your uh, transition to? To the athletics? Athletics rector, yeah. No, I, I was, um, you know, other than I was uh, an advisor to the Ford School of Public Policy. Okay, okay. You know, and uh, which a lot of, you know, Hank Meyer was right. uh, locally here, was uh, head of Meyer and we, so people would, you'd have visibility. Yeah. I think President Coleman, right. uh, who I did know uh, from just successive things over 10 years that she yeah. was in the job, when the, the sitting president, Mark Schlissel, ran into this uh, challenge, uh, she suggested he call me. And when he did, I said, I have one suggestion, is go back to the athletic director and work this out. Yeah. Because this is another leadership thing, is when there's a difficulty, and, and the question of talent isn't, uh, isn't the issue. I Generally mean, it's not, is it? And it's not, and particularly with these two people, they're both at the highest levels in their respective fields, the yeah. sitting athletic director and the president right. of the university. Right. So is it a matter of you two getting along? And, and uh, I give Mark a lot of credit that he wanted that to work, and I said, I really can't talk to you, because. Dave Brandon, who was sitting in the job, is my friend. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to advise you on how he should work, and I right. don't know, really. Right. So he said, okay, and he hung up. And he came back uh, two weeks later, maybe, and said, I have attempted to do that, as you asked. Right. And the regents have decided, you know, that they want it's to make a change. So, yeah. so then that, I didn't talk to Dave about any of this. It wasn't my place. Right. But I, I, right. it gave me freedom to then right. consider it. So you made a decision, and then you figured out the best guy for the head coaching position at Michigan was Jim Harbaugh. How did that come about? Yes, and um, it didn't. It didn't. I mean, it, it, it was such an obvious target. But I was again the reluctant leader and there's uh, Jim Collins has written about the reluctant leader 
which uh, can serve you well in a sense. It's not about not getting up and going to work and making decisions. Yeah. It's about questioning, am, am I close enough? Do I need to, to learn more, listen more, ask more questions before I make a decision? Right. The reluctance isn't making a decision, it's making the right decision and, and seeing your confidence in it. I call it coming to a point of view. So I build a system for evaluating coaches that I, I got teased about a little bit, but let me describe it to you. I invited three of the most historic coaches at Everett, Michigan, uh, Gary Moeller, who's passed away, Lloyd Carr, and Jerry Hanlon, who was the line coach and often color announcer. Remember. And um, I'd already announced that Brady wouldn't be coming back, so they weren't caught on, you know, flat-footed. We went over to the football uh, stadium and took one of the suites and made a project room. And I, I said, you guys, and I had somebody that had worked for me at Steelcase that was a great project manager, because I'm going to build the walls with information. And I started with a question, what makes a great coach? But each one of them uh, had to hear this and define the virtues that were, were there. And we made a list, okay? And then, and, and just again for the audience, you know, if it's an offensive-minded coach, is it that they know how to run the ball? Is it quarterbacking? Is it, you know, right. et cetera? Defense, is it speed? Is, you know, all these different things that you will hear from announcers. But these were football coaches. And the, the speed in which we got that list was amazing. Then I just made a list of candidates that I had in pro and college and that they may know about. Yeah. So we have a, we have a ladder of, of names and a ladder of virtues. Now we make a ping pong ball, meaning a sticker that's a circle, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that like in Jim's case, JH was on that. Right. And we go over and we have multiples of that for just him. And let's make up a name, Sam Smith. And we go over and we put the ping pong balls by each virtue. When we're all done, we add up. Who had the most ping pong balls? Jim did. Now, I believe that would have, you could have intuitively done it really fast. But I wanted, in retrospect, remember I said the reluctance, that if somebody came yeah. and looked at me and said, how did you decide, did you decide that? that? We had the evidence of yeah. that. And it's proven to itself to be it's a, proven and, and a of course, smart decision now over, on the, time. over time. And, of course, I love the guy. Like, literally, don't know of anybody, anybody in modern coaching today that I could feel comfortable with but him. Yeah, yeah, he's turned it around. Yeah. And number two ranked team in the country right now. Yeah, and... and um, could possibly be number one. Could, yeah, and, and he's built his system, which yeah. which I, there were inklings of this, Wayman, when he was at Stanford, actually, I saw. Yeah, you saw some of that. I there. saw some of that. And essentially, to characterize it, it's like he has a pro system in college. Yeah. yeah. So once I talked to Urban Meyer on the field, and who's not really forthcoming, you know, with uh, what he would think, but he was he was quite, he said, I can't, I can't prepare for right. him. Because the number right. of formations and things he brings right. And this is, you know, Urban had his way yeah. with us, but right. Jim was scared him. Right. Well, let's move on to Ford Motor Company. Unbelievable what's happened at that company, the uh, autonomous vehicles and the partnership with the University of Michigan. I know you're probably instrumental with all of that. Tell us about how you transitioned from that role at, at University of Michigan and then move into the CEO role yeah. at Ford. And, and, and why did they bring you into that suite? 
Well, it starts with the same kind of moment when I'm leaving Steelcase, and I knew I didn't want to be the long-term athletic director. I thought maybe I'd stay for six months and I stayed 18. Um, and, and there's a bunch of reasons why that just didn't fit me, even though I felt good about the stewardship while I was there. And so I was thinking about what I was going to do next, and I talked to Bill Ford about a newer idea. The data stuff, you know, I, I 18 months lost some traction, lost my advisory committee. And so I started to reason that maybe, and, and, and you know, I should add the time away, which is another teaching moment here. When you're a leader and it's so intense what you do, it's hard for you to get any moment to reflect on yourself and, yeah. and, and, and like watch a movie of yourself and see how you're doing. One reason the network groups are so healthy for us is because you get to hear others talk about what you already know you're doing. You'd think, well, I'm not getting anything from it, but it's very therapeutic. Yeah. Well, taking an interim assignment like that did the same thing for me. It, it took the great uh, taste I had in my mouth from the, the steel case kind of dinner, first course. It was like a palate cleanser at Michigan. Right, it was a reflection opportunity. Yeah, and I went to Bill and I said, uh, on reflection, I think I'd like to um, help you, excuse me, I didn't say that. I said, I think I would like to help a family. And I talked to Steve Van Andel and Amway about this, neither of whom I was asking for them to endorse me. I was thinking, what do you think of the idea of families who have younger people that they want to get ready mm. for eventual assignment that I could help not coach, but nurture along. Mm. And I, it was an ill-defined idea, but Bill loved it. And so the next day he said, you know that thing you're talking about, I'd like you to help me. And I go, why, well, I'm, you know, no. Because uh, I was on the board, I should point yeah, out the you were on the board at the time. Uh, when I was athletic director at Michigan, I was yeah. on the Ford board. And so the first assignment was not as CEO, it was to help him with the future of the direction of the company yeah. and advise the CEO. And I was out of the boardroom. So when the board was making this decision they wanted to change, I had nothing to do with it. Right. I didn't know about it. Um, in fact, my I had a total commitment, just like I told you with the athletic director change, to the incumbent. Right. That's the, the way to be. Yeah. <clears throat> and they came to me uh, and asked, uh, would you take this job? And I, I said, no, there's better people. And so some months passed while um, I think they assessed that because I gave them some suggestions. And they came back and uh, Bill and then a couple directors said, you really need to step in here. Um, and when you step in like that, Friday there's uh, one individual in charge and Monday you're the next. This is, these are difficult things, so I can't stress enough how hard that is kind of on the ascending CEO, the one who's taking over. Yeah. Because you really have no credibility with the leadership team. Right, you don't. And you didn't pick any of them. Right. And they right. didn't pick you. Right. So there's a lot of uh, work that Absolutely. has to be done to get those connections made. Yeah. And, and, and that's what yeah. I did yeah. at the very beginning. Yeah. So you, that was a tough job. That's probably the toughest, toughest job that you've had, I would imagine. Well, I, 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 in preparing to talk to you, I wanted to say that to be a CEO with all the benefits you get from that, you know, good compensation, if you feed off the notoriety, I didn't, 
um, you have to see the other side of it, which is it is, the, it is one of the hardest jobs that you can undertake. And I loved hard jobs. I right. really loved. And what I mean by that, like the puzzle part of it. Sure. Because only the most difficult things come to your desk. Right. They aren't solved when they show up. That's right. And, and then in parallel, which we all talk about, is you have people issues. And if you care about people like I did, you're, you're with them intently. And so um, I took the assignment at Steelcase, the assignment at Michigan, and the assignment at Ford because someone lost their job on Friday and I started on Monday. All three of those jobs, I was asked to kind of step in. And I look back on that and say, uh, I, I could share to the listeners um, what it's like to step in, as I just described, and then say that upon reflecting on all three of those things, the amount of work I put in wouldn't be well known, but it was incredible. Like I worked, I only took one day a week off in that life because you couldn't take more you than that. You have to be prepared. And I prepared for everything. Yeah. And, uh, and I worked extremely hard trying to plan the way a football coach plans a script. You see yes, these big yes, white cards. Have a play. Yeah, I, I, I actually am trying to think ahead each yes. week, picture myself you know, making stuff happen. So a quick example for you at Ford was, I need to get the vehicles connected to modems if I can get the vision of what I'm carrying around about data science. Yeah. Remember I said that? Yes. I brought that to Ford, not, not that it wasn't there, but the idea of you got to get these vehicles connected so we can realize the world that's yeah, coming. Right. So AI that we hear about, it would not work if these vehicles weren't connected. And, and now I'm really proud of that among some other things that we got done there. Yeah. So Jim, how do you uh, stay motivated and resilient? I mean, you, you talk about that, you know, what you went through. So how, how does one stay uh, strong and stand tall when, when the duress comes. What, well, I'm smiling. I'm smiling to my comrade across the table because it really, I was really taught this in athletics, you know, and I mean, for me, and I know you, you would draw the same uh, parallel, maybe we should hear that. That first August practice, which for the listeners is the preceding of the season, I mean, the temperatures were 100 degrees. I lost 20 pounds in 10 days, you know, because I never physically had been pushed like that. Right. And all my brothers on the team were feeling the same way. And so the, the camaraderie and going through hell together, or maybe a Marine feels this, makes you closer. And then the respect you have for your ability to do that yes. uh, is what I would give you as the answer. So there was never a difficult thing that I didn't feel like I was prepared for. I wasn't arrogant about what I needed to do. Never had a fear, never never backed down. I mean, I, I could tell you stories that wouldn't embarrass anybody, like when the debt rating agencies came to Ford and said, we're gonna downgrade you. And I came in a room, you know, I was sick as a dog. I just, I still had to get there yeah. and have the meeting. And I, I had trouble getting in the room. You know, I, I was I was dizzy right. and I was really sick. Yeah. And I sat down and went to war. You know, and and got an extension that really mattered and at that time. That determination. Yeah. yeah. And it came. It, it just 
you know, looking at you across the, the playing field, I'd get that out of your eyes, you know, yeah, so I would get something. strength from others. Yeah, they call that edge. They call that the edge. And, the, you know, Bo Schembechler drilled that into you. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. Probably your dad, too, perhaps. I don't know, your brother's the, growing up. The, yeah, the, the combined But you combined. find that somehow that, that comes up, doesn't that, it? Yeah, it that does. You were prepared for the job. I was prepared, and I didn't realize as a youngster that all that was building a resilience that I could do this job, mm. you know. The question of why, and I know people, why you don't have fear but you have a healthy respect. Um, I got to hear the General Milley on the 60 Minutes and I just, I loved his demeanor, you know, because he doesn't have fear for all the things they were throwing at him. But the respect that comes out about the humility of the assignment and how important his decisions are. That's how I felt, you know, as a CEO. You're not sitting there thinking, well, how much am I going to make next year? You never really think about that. I handed <laughs> all of my comp and everything to a bank and said, I don't really even want to talk about this until I retire. Yeah. Uh, because my job is zoomed, the job. You know, uh, laser focused on, on success and, and uh, making things happen. And how, do so, you, how do you deal with the criticism? You know, some, sometimes uh, in, in those jobs, you're going to hear it from either the radio agencies or you're going to hear it from, you know, the news outlets. Uh, you're going to hear it from different, different folk. I know you, you probably have had your share of that. So how, how do you deal with the ridicule and the criticism? It, you know, I, I'll offer this having stepped out three years ago of all these jobs, and I'm close to a lot of people that may be under a heat lamp, and I think, it's so silly. It's so silly that they may be feeling insecure because I know them, right? My respect is so high for Bill Ford and Jim Farley in the middle of UAW conflict. I don't, no one can knock my confidence off. Yeah. But the way they're feeling, because I've talked to both of them, is under attack, you know. Yeah. Their character, what they're paid, do they care about people, right. all those things right. are, are high standards for them. So yet when you're in the battle, for loyalty and support, um, these the criticism can get to you in a way where you, you want to explain yourself all the time, mm -hmm. which means you're taking it too seriously. Yeah. And so the truth in that is you've got to work on what you can control, which is the successes you can bring will take care of all that. Yeah. And I got better at that as I got older. Yeah. But there's a point at, at Steelcase, for example, there was a, a Monday uh, magazine that followed the industry and we had cut off the subscription endorsement. So they came after me personally. And I remember I, I never had felt that uh, like that. And it, it was really hard. Um, there's a very classic story at Ford where I stood up for somebody that the press had tried to destroy. Yeah. And when... When I did that, um, when I did that, I got the editor to retract the story, but that reporter's never forgetting, forgotten or forgiven. Wow. And so I've come under, but I now look back with pride that I know the real reason that person's picking on me, you know. And what's happened over time is the, the truth of what I yeah. or you stood for, yeah. those play out in a way that become the authentic record of yeah. who you are. Yeah, you just have to hang in there. So, Jim, what would you want your kids and your family, Kathy, to uh, 
to, to say about you? What, what, how do you look at family and, and uh, uh, what you would want them to say about you as a, as a person? Well, th there's a paradox here, Wayman, which is you, if you try and do things for others in return for credit, then you're not really doing for others. It is not charitable. It's not giving. And um, this very famous uh, theorist in human resources at, at, at Penn, you know, teaches Grant. His last name's Grant. He's worked for Google. He says there's giver, givers, takers, and makers as personalities. A giver is someone who lives their life thinking, how can I help the next yeah. person? That regardless of your class, it's your giver. A taker is thereafter, I need, I, 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 I want everything, and you got to help me. A maker is between the two, you know, um, and makers um, and givers make the better leaders. Mm. A taker is really not a very good leader, you know, narcissism overwhelms them. So I would want to be known as a giver uh, in that framework, and it's about caring for others. And mm -hmm. the story I told you that I want to repeat is when I was a youngster, we had, uh, my mother had these four boys, and my dad was a veterinarian. There was no, no one to run the animal hospital, so my mother would go and run the animal hospital and, and then leave us alone. So we had a lady that would stay with us. And 18 years, she... Would, you know, she didn't live in the house, but she was there, and she was, she was African American, and so I'm the youngest. This became like a second mother to me. You know how close I was to her, and but uh, my respect for her um, was because I had, I had, we had good academics in the family, and one of my brothers that went to Columbia um, uh, when we was younger, we would play Jeopardy on the. Uh, we were all young around. It was on the television. And she would win. Ah. She she would beat this brother that ends up at Columbia, you know. So, and and then, the the way they would fight because he would say that you know she didn't get the answer faster or something like that, you know, which was just the way four brothers are. You know, they don't they don't want to not right. win. So the respect couldn't have been higher. And she was such a great teacher. Well, one day the animal hospital, which is around the corner, uh, had a rat infestation. Mm. And it's because of all the foods and stuff they had that they were trying to get in and eat all this stuff. So they, they brought a crew of people to eradicate it. And she was petrified of rats. Because, mm. and, and I, lay, I had stayed at her home and it, it wasn't great. And so I have a feeling that, you know, she had to inter, interact with rodents at some time and it just, she was petrified. My wife's petrified of different things. And I said to her, I said, don't worry about it. You know, I was 10. That, that's way over there. They're not going to come here. Mm. Mm. I was trying to calm her down. Unbeknownst to me, to pick on her, the person that I won't uh, smirk, who's passed away, comes running. It wasn't anybody related to us. Comes running to the door, pounding on the door saying the rats have gotten loose and they're coming in your house. And she ran upstairs mm. and locked herself in the bathroom. Mm. And he followed her and took his belt and put it under the door. Mm. To, to and, and so there was a moment where she was devastated, you know, and I'm punching him. You know, like I, 
I saw racism in full technicolor at that moment. And, it, you know, it could have been someone who wasn't of color and it still was wrong, right? Right. You know, I want to freely admit that. But I don't think that's what was driving it. I think it was power and trying to control her. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget her in that moment. And she came out, you know, I hugged her. We, and um, I, I, we couldn't be closer to her. My proudest moment is she goes on and becomes the town librarian. All right. Got her college degree. That's fantastic. And then my brother, who uh, one of them was a physician, took care of her, you know, in her life before she passed. And, uh, and so, Wayman, you know, it changed me in a way as I thought about a giver here. How can I help all kinds of people? Um, and I, I know we're in, a, we're in a time frame in our lives where this challenge is being challenged. Absolutely. You know, but I'm undaunted about this because when I get with folks and I get to talk about, I never really share that story. But I did with you because I want you to understand where I come from. And so mm. in helping the community, uh, it's not an activist position, but it is where can I do what I did as CEO to help people get an equal playing ground? That's all I want to do. I, I want them that's, to get the chances that I got, and then they're either good at it or not. I think that's admirable, Jim. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm motivated, and, and you and I are working on some yeah, things. Yeah. And so tell me, so, so how, how can we uh, make sure that everyone's dreams are fulfilled? Tell me what your ideal would be. What would you say would be the number one or two things that we all could do to make all dreams come true? Well, I have a very close friend, David Kelly, who founded a company called IDEO and now is the head of the D School at Stanford. And... He's in his 70s, and um, he wrote a book called Creative Confidence. That he There's a TED Talk of David Kelly, Creative Confidence. I mm -hmm. urge everyone to read it because the dreams come from your ability to imagine yes, a world that's not fantastical. It's just different than where you are. David's written about, and there's a lot of science to this, about how that infuses people with the energy to, to realize yeah. the dreams. So, my contribution to your series on this is get confidence that the dreams aren't uh, outlandish, that the freedom for you to be who you want to be uh, is unbounded. The second thing is you can choose to be the kind of person in that dream that people will want to be with or not. And so I have a phrase, I used it forward, we have to choose the kind of people we're going to be so that it becomes the company we want it to be. And so I, I, I do believe that there's a parallel world, the Bob Pugh's, the, the Gerald Ford's, the Bo Schembechler's taught me is that you got to choose to be extremely full of integrity. You can be, you can be short and fast, you can be tall or uh, fat, you can be any kind of person, but if you have this core engine of integrity, the people will trust you and follow yeah. you. So confidence for, for unbounded and the kind of human you want to be is my yeah. suggestions. Yeah, right. So what would you tell a young aspiring leader today? What are the things that you would ask them to try to become? How would you ask them to model their lives? Well, the way I would approach it is I'd be giving them that talk that, that you know, that Wayman Brits and people I know 
about, you know, that some of us come from very humble backgrounds. I grew up in a very small town. My wife's father was worked in an auto factory. Yeah. And we haven't forgotten, you know, that we were very happy then. Um, uh, to the leader, I would say, so don't look at your stake today as the dictating what you're going to be. A. B. Uh, in have confidence, as we just talked about. C. Think about the kind of person you want to be in that. The only thing we didn't get to go into deeply is how hard you're going to have to work now. Yes. But don't fear that because that that helps the the, the confidence side if you prepare and you work hard. And um, and so what what happens if uh, you know. If I build a, I build a home and have, I, I go visit the tile, uh, the people setting the tile, and there's a genius in the room, I know this, and I sit and talk to him, and I marvel at how hard he works to make it perfect. Yeah. And I tell him that. And I say, do you know we're the same? I was a CEO, but I work just as hard as you're doing setting the tile. It's just different. And you might say, what is that? It's the preparation. I'd have to read maybe 10 books a week you know, in parallel, to keep trying to learn uh, about different ways and different methods to integrate into my thinking. Yeah. When did I do that? I was running the company. My wife would be sound asleep, and they were on the nightstand, and I would work till midnight and get up, you know, early the next morning, start all over again. I would, I, I would um, plan the first five days of my schedule that following week. I would go through every hour thinking about the meeting I was in, visualizing what I was going to learn and what I could do to keep things on track. I would role play myself, make notes. So then when I got in a meeting, I wanted to make sure, because I could get unfocused abstractly. Yeah. That was how I would stay on tact. Right. And I have all those notes. I've kept them all from wow. 30 years of what I was trying to do. Right, right. That's helpful. That is so huge. I mean, you, you think about it, it's more to it than just thinking about it, dreaming about it. It's the hard work, it's the tactics that you use. And you've, you've shared a lot here today, Jim. And I want to thank you for being on our show and looking forward to uh, the reaction from those who will listen to it. I hope that your transition back to Grand Rapids, uh, now that you've left board and uh, the work that you're going to be doing with your your foundation is a, is a wonderful time and well spent. Uh, we're looking forward to our partnering together. So thank you all for joining Fulfilling the Dream and we look forward to our time again when we talk about how do we pursue our dreams. And, uh, thank you, Jim, for being on our show today. Thank you, Wayman. Thanks for listening to Fulfilling the Dream with Wayman Brett, the podcast that gives you courage and confidence to fulfill your dreams. Discover the riveting personal account of Wayman's journey in his book, Fulfilling the Dream, My Path to Leadership and Finding Purpose Through Serving Others, available in print and audiobook. If you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Fulfilling the Dream, wherever you get your podcast. Share this episode with others. If you think you don't know them well enough, do it anyway. Be bold, make a connection. And if you have a powerful story to tell, let us hear it. To get connected, visit fulfillingthedreampodcast.com.